So welcome, yep. Dr. Michael Brown. Uh, welcome, brother, to the show. You're a you're an evangelist, uh, a Bible scholar. You also uh, run a school north of Charlotte, I think it is, radio personality um, and uh, professor, tremendous Bible scholar, and I really appreciate you. Thank you for your time coming on my podcast today. Oh, my, my joy to do it. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're doing a little Christmas uh, episode here, Isaiah 9, 6 primarily, and we're just going to jump right in. Let me read this verse. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name uh, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Dr. Brown, what is the meaning of this verse in its context? It seems like there's a lot going on in Isaiah and the surrounding context. Surely, we, we have to look at Isaiah 7 through 11, which really unfolds a lot of the messianic themes of the book of Isaiah and the promise of, of a coming king, a child to be born, and then a child has been born. Uh, what's the speaking of? When you read the verse, as in many of our English translations, it has the verbs about the birth as future. Uh, but in the Hebrew, Yelad Yulad Lanu Bendi Tanlanu, those are perfect. Those are speaking of something in the past. A child has been born, a son has been given. So uh, is it what's called the prophetic perfect? In other words, the prophet looking in the future sees this as already done. And we have this in other passages that, that the prophet sees into the future and declares the thing as already done. Or was there an expectation of a king that was born then, a child born then, perhaps Hezekiah, and people thought he will be the deliverer of the nation? The question is, if that's the case, how can these lofty things be spoken of him? Peleoetz El Giboraviad Sar Shalom, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And there are rabbinic interpreters that read it differently. They tried to put all the titles on God and said, the God who is mighty and powerful and everlasting father will call the child Prince of Peace. Grammatically, it's very forced, and it makes no sense as to why all these titles would be heaped on God if the issue is about the birth of the son. There are other rabbinic commentaries that say, no, these were all the names that were given to Hezekiah, and they try to bring down that El Gibor, mighty God, it doesn't really mean mighty God, but, but powerful in battle. Or, or uh, where, where he's called, for example, Aviad, everlasting father. It means that he is, he's the father of the people forever. And so they try to interpret it with regard to an earthly king. But ultimately, this is what's clear. Whatever was spoken, whatever was anticipated in that day did not come to pass as written. In other words, Hezekiah did not bring the rule and reign that's spoken of in the next verse. He did not bring the endless peace and the kingdom of God that's spoken of in the next verse. So this is another example of one of these mystical prophecies that the prophets spoke in a specific time frame, because Assyria was the great power then. Assyria had brought the northern 10 tribes into Israel. Assyria was threatening Judah. There's even a famous inscription from Sennacherib where he says, I have Hezekiah shut up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. And God miraculously delivers Judah and uses Hezekiah. And would he be the deliverer of the people in the greater David? No, he wasn't. So as the centuries go on, you look back at these passages and say, well, who is it speaking of then? Is, is there something more going on here? A, a rabbi told me when I first came to faith over 51 years ago that the, the prophets often saw the Messiah as coming and the immediate horizons of history. 
Christians can relate to that in looking to the return of Jesus in every generation and seeing the events of their day as leading into his return. So the Old Testament prophets, they, they would see redemption coming as if it was right around the corner. But that corner okay. may have been centuries and centuries down the line. And that's what happens here. So the, okay. the short version is a prophecy that seemed to have relevance for that day was actually a prophecy of the coming messianic king who would fully be all of these things, fully be mighty God, fully be the the, the father forever or the possessor of eternity, fully be the prince of peace and the wonderful counselor. And that's why in Handel's Messiah, these words are sung. That's why to this day, followers of Jesus look at that verse and say, who is it talking about? It's him, it's Yeshua, it's Jesus. Yeah, it's what what about uh, again the historical context? I think it's in the previous chapter. There's this phrase about the the this son will eat curds or, or butter and honey. And did that uh, did that uh, come to fruition back then at the time, or is that something uh, future from then? No, that's that's very interesting. So starting in Isaiah seven, we have a prophecy which is given to King Ahaz by Isaiah. King Ahaz was was looking to Assyria. We find that out later and through other books that he's being attacked from the north by by Syria, Aram, and Israel. So he, rather than looking to the Lord, because he's a godless man, he's going to hire out Assyria. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah comes with a word of rebuke for him because God's willing to give him a sign, but Ahaz, no, no, I, I won't ask for a sign. In other words, I don't want God's help. I've got my plan here. So there's a word of rebuke and a promise about a child that would be born. Is it a virgin, a young woman? All the endless debate about that. Something miraculous about this birth, something special about this child. He will be called Emmanuel, which is God with us or God is with us. So it's a promise to the nation. But then it's a rebuke to Ahaz about coming devastation and desolation. And this child will grow up uh, in a time of, of national desolation. So the question is, who is that child? Uh, in the next chapter, he's referenced Emmanuel. Uh, his presence is, is recognized. Who is that child? Even if there was an expectation of a child born then, you go back and look and say, there's something more going on here. And clearly, it finds its fulfillment in the miraculous birth of Jesus, which is then expanded in the ninth chapter in terms of the son that's born. And then the 11th chapter, the root of Jesse that will rule over the nations. So it could well be that that yes you had something temporary take place in isaiah's day the very next chapter talks about a son that'll be born to the to the prophet and his wife to isaiah and his wife and it's almost identical to the time frame as the emmanuel prophecy in other words it's as if this child takes the time place there and there's still a future reference so child growing up in isaiah's day at a time of national attack could have grown up in that time of devastation uh, Yeshua growing up as a child would would grow up under under Roman domination. Roman occupation, but, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the key thing is the word fulfillment. In other words, mm. there is a larger full picture. When you're filling the glass and it's a third of the way full, it's not full yet. It's only mm. when it gets to the top that it's full. So these prophecies had to have some relevance for the people in that day. Just like Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. And in Psalm 2, there's a celebration of this king who will rule the nations, who is God's son, probably spoken over David as his coronation, and then subsequently spoken over each of the kings who were called God's son. But with each new king, 
you realize it's not happening. And now the Jewish people in exile, now no throne of David, you think, where is that kid? There's got to be something more that this passage is speaking of. It, it's almost as if I, I have a word that Southern Evangelical Seminary, you know, God gives this prophetic message, will reach millions of people and will expand to a larger campus. And then you, you get on a, a little bit bigger campus and then you're maybe reaching a bunch of people through the internet. You think that's the fulfillment. No, no, no. The fulfillment is when you have this massive 500-acre campus and you have millions of people. You know, In other words, it's bigger than we realize. So often we look for the temporal, the immediate, when there's something bigger. And that's how Messianic prophecy, I believe, developed in Israel, that words were spoken, promises were given to the line of David. And with each new successor, and things got further and further degenerated, and the people got further and further away from the promise, they began to look, it's got to be something greater. Yeah. Something more. And well, I, I think you look not just for. I yeah. think you're already heading in the direction of one of my next questions was how would a a, a Jew in the first century reading this uh, passage, how would they interpret it or, or what would be the perspective for most Jews in Israel in the first century on this passage? Right. So it's. It's it's a hard question to ask in terms of most Jews in the first century because we have yeah. we have limited literature. So we can speculate though, right? Yes. yes. Uh, you know, it's just like saying, "What does your average American Christian believe?" Well, that's that's a big question. Uh, yeah. I, there's no evidence that Isaiah seven fourteen was interpreted as a messianic prophecy in first century Israel. There's just been no evidence of that. So that would have been an insight given to Matthew by the Spirit. Or perhaps okay. when Jesus rose from the dead and sat and opened the scriptures. But later but Jewish rabbis would would interpret Isaiah 714 messianically, right? No, no we, we don't have evidence that they interpreted okay. Isaiah 714 messianically. We do have evidence that they interpreted Isaiah 9-6 messianically and okay. Isaiah 11-1 messianically. I, I was going to uh, so ask for example, you about that because you remember writing yeah. a chapter uh, in this book. Uh, yes, sir. You wrote on Isaiah 9 I'm uh, Isaiah 53, and you actually cited Rambam, no less, uh, Mamanides, and also uh, the Talmud, I think, that actually uh, interpreted Isaiah 53 messianically. So I'm wondering, you know, who who was interpreting the Isaiah? You're saying, but the larger passage was interpreted by a couple of, of rabbis. Isaiah 53, yes, there there are varied interpretations of Isaiah 53 in ancient Jewish literature. So you mentioned Rambam, Maimonides, he, he's in the 12th century. He references it in his in his letter to Yemen, his epistle to Yemen mm. as, as being messianic, which is, which is interesting. But we do have ancient traditions preserved in the Talmud, some of which I interpret Isaiah 53 with regard to an individual figure like Moses, who interceded for Israel. Uh, some passages interpreted it with reference to the righteous remnant within Israel, but others clearly recognized it as pointing to a suffering Messiah. And there are ancient Jewish interpretations of Isaiah 53 that reference it as messianic. Uh, and when it comes to Isaiah 9-6, we know the Targum, which was the Jewish translation or paraphrase that was used in the synagogues where people didn't understand Hebrew. So you, you, you'd read the Hebrew, and then the Aramaic would be a translation paraphrase so the ancient Targum understood Isaiah 9-6 as being messianic. And there are there are rabbinic commentaries over the centuries that have as well. So some interpreted it with regard to Hezekiah, 
but it's very forced to try to make it work there because it, it doesn't fit him. Others recognize that it was speaking of a future Messiah. So certainly many Jews reading this in the first century would have understood it as a messianic prophecy. Okay. And let me uh, throw a little bit of a curveball in here. Some will say, well, when you get to Matthew 1, uh, and the angel tells Mary and Joseph uh, individually about the, the prophecy and the child. Mary actually did not name the child Emmanuel. So how would you answer that charge? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing is Matthew was not oblivious to that. In other words, this is not something that Matthew was. Oh, wow. I never thought of that. And and millions yeah. of Christian readers would look at it and think, wow, I never <laughs> thought of that. So people raise it as if it's a, one of those gotcha things. But, you know, right. look, God gives the name, uh, uh, Solomon's name is Yadid Yah, beloved of the Lord, but he's never called that. He's called Solomon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the same with Emmanuel. He is called Emmanuel by uh, hundreds of millions of people around the world who, who worship him and, and sing those words to him. So, in fact, he is called by that name. And it, names are also symbolic. So right. when, when someone has a certain name, it symbolizes who they are or what they do or what their qualities are. So that's the other thing with the name. It doesn't have to be the, the name that's given because Matthew tells you he'll be called Yeshua, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So that's explicit there. And yet he is Emmanuel. He is called Emmanuel by multiplied millions, and it does describe his nature. Yes, sir. Good. Uh, um also, what about, uh, I really love the historical context of Matthew 4, I think 15, 16, where Matthew cites the first couple of verses of Isaiah 9 and describes the actual geographical location that uh, Yeshua is yes. going to grow up in his boyhood home. Yeah, so what's really interesting is is there are people who, who accuse Matthew of just ripping verses out of context, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the technical word is, is it's atomistic. It just pulls the verse out and, and makes it say something it doesn't say. To the contrary, we see that Matthew has in mind Matthew seven, uh, Isaiah 7 through 11. So we know he explicitly quotes Isaiah 7, 14, and he quotes from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the day, which translated Alma as Parthenos. So he's, he's not mm. making something up by applying it to a virgin. You already have the Septuagint translation. And then you mention in Matthew, the fourth chapter, that he references the beginning of Isaiah 9. So that's telling us he has Isaiah 9 in mind there, the the revelation of God's glory through Jesus to the nations. But we also see that he has Isaiah 11 in mind as well. Here's what's interesting. David Klinghoffer is an Orthodox Jewish journalist and and, uh, researcher. And in his book about Jesus in the New Testament, he says, boy, you know, to paraphrase, Matthew makes so many mistakes, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's just so easy to find his mistakes. In contrast, W.D. Davies and Dale C. Allison, who wrote to date the most comprehensive technical commentary on Matthew uh, uh, in English, they said that Matthew hides his treasures in, in, in Hebrew and Greek for those that will dig deeper. So it would be like Einstein showing me E equals MC squared. I thought, what's this? It's a piece of paper. Throw it away because I don't get it. Whereas those that are in the know look at this and think this is the most outstanding scientific discovery ever. So Matthew, quite the contrary. It's not that he was that stupid. And after decades of work, puts out something which you can refute, like shooting fish in a barrel. To the contrary, you have to dig. 
So at the end of the second chapter of Matthew, it tells us that Joseph comes back uh, to, the, to the land of Israel after, after fleeing uh, to Egypt. He comes back and they settle in Nazareth that what the prophets, plural, said would be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. Mm-hmm. Well, there is no such prophecy in the Old Testament. People think, was Matthew made it up? No, no. He said, as the prophets. The only time he uses plural. He doesn't cite Isaiah or Jeremiah as the prophets. So it's plural said, he'll be called a Nazarene. What's he have in mind? Well, first would be Isaiah 11.1, 1, where the Messiah is called the Netzer, a branch, a shoot. And, and elsewhere he's called the Tzemach, the branch, in Jeremiah 23 and in, in uh, Zechariah uh, chapter six and, and chapter three. So uh, a, a name of the Messiah was the branch. Here's another word for it, Netzer, which is similar to Nazareth, Nazareth, right? So there's a play on words, which is common in the Hebrew Bible and all over rabbinic literature. So he's called the branch elsewhere. And then elsewhere, it speaks of his lowliness, his humiliation, his being of, of no account, you know, his origins, which would fit Nazareth, some backwoods place in Galilee. So right. Matthew has in mind Isaiah 11 as well. That's the first thing he's talking about there because he's a Netzer. So hence the play on words, he lives in Netzerah. So Matthew clearly has Isaiah 7, 9, and 11 in mind. And he sees that Isaiah 7, 14 is not isolated just for the days of Ahaz, but something of ongoing significance in terms of a messianic birth. So you dig a little deeper and you that's the whole thing, even with rabbinic literature, you have to dig and say, ah, that's the point that they were getting at. Same with Matthew. Yes, sir. Okay, good. What about, uh, thank you, Dr. Brown. What about, you mentioned this earlier, but Christians who read today in the next few weeks during Christmas or anytime they're reading uh, Matthew and Luke, who's quoting those Christmas verses as, as we might call them, but they read those selections or sections that mention throne of David. Can you make that clear and simple for Christians today? This is that was not a prophecy for Jesus' first advent. Or what should Christians yeah, so, see when they read those phrases? Right. So the throne of David means he's the Messiah. He's the messianic king. He's the son of David. And one day he will rule and reign over the entire earth when he returns sitting on David's throne. We know, for example, in, in Matthew uh, 19, 28, Matthew 25, 31, it speaks of Yeshua sitting on the throne. We, we know in, in Luke 1, the angel Gabriel says that to Miriam, Mary, that he will sit on the throne of David. He'll be given the throne of David. So it means, number one, he's the Messiah. He's the Messianic King, the son of David. And number two, that one day he will physically rule and reign over the earth. It's not for us to set up that kingdom now, but when he returns, he will literally rule and reign out of Jerusalem, sitting on a literal throne in the future. That's how we would understand it. But the key thing is he's the Messiah who will fulfill all of the Messianic prophecies and promises. Yes, sir. Very good. Last question is more practical, Dr. Brown. Um, What would you say to Christians today about how we can implement these Christmas verses during the holidays, during the Christmas and our busyness and our activities and evangelism? How can we implement these Christmas verses? Yeah, we are living in a very confused generation we are living in a generation that in many ways is, is spiritually, morally bankrupt. We are living in a time of great uncertainty. We are living at a time of, of fear. Is the end of the world going to be here through a nuclear war? Is there going to be a worse pandemic? Is the government going to crumble? Is the United States going to be pulled apart? 
Is climate change going to destroy? I mean, people growing up, kids growing up with a lot of uncertainty, what we need to shout out to the world is we have reason for hope because God sent his son into the world. No one has to perish. No one has to be lost. No one has to be separated from God forever. No one has to live and die in their sins. Redemption has come. The price has been paid. You can have the hope of eternal life here and now, forgiveness of sins by embracing what God has done through his son and surrendering your life to him. So we have wonderful news. And this news is wonderful in the darkest day. This news is wonderful even when we're grieving the, the loss of loved ones. This, this news is wonderful when everything's collapsing around us. This is what we hold on to. So those words on Christ, the solid rock, I stand, are, are more powerful than we realize. And, and even though these chapters are, are read, especially the opening chapters of Matthew and Luke at this time of the year, there's this extraordinary reality, God entered into our world through his son. God did not just leave us on our own to, to go about our own ways and destroy ourselves. He came into our world, therefore joy to the world. This is the hope of the world. Let's not argue over politics. Let's not argue over other issues in these days ahead. Let's focus to King Jesus, the one who was born, the one who Man. rose from the dead and the one who's returning. That, that's our hope. That's our hope. That's a good word to end this episode on. Thank you, Dr. Michael Brown, for joining us uh, on my podcast today. You've been listening to The Bible Professors. Thank you for connecting with The Bible Professor podcast. If you have questions, feel free to contact us. If you like our content and are getting value from it, consider subscribing, sharing, and supporting in the links below.